Good morning, church, and happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. That's a solemn way to look at Father's Day, but there's encouragement in there. And I know that as we celebrate today and you think about your dads, you think about the roles you play as husbands and fathers, I'm reminded of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, that as evil as we are, and as much as we desire to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Heavenly Father do the same? And so the best thing we can do as fathers and as husbands is emulate God and follow Christ and the example that he set. And when, as the song said, we're laid to rest, what's our legacy? So I'll leave you with that encouragement this morning. So this morning, I thank Pastor. I'm not your pastor. I thank Pastor Kurt for giving me the opportunity to preach this morning. They were going to youth camp this week. So it gives me the unique opportunity and the blessing to come before you and share God's word, which I enjoy doing. Uh, so this morning, we're going to be in Mark 4. Chapters 1 through 20. So you can go ahead and be opening up there. If you didn't get, so we did, I did things a little bit different. So if you're used to seeing your notes on the back of the bulletin, they were actually beside the bulletin. So I'll give you a second if you need notes. Uh, Brother Steve back there has got them. You can raise your hand. He'll hand them out to you. But we're going to look at parables this morning, and in particular one certain parable. And as I've went around the country in the military and think back to my childhood as well, I wasn't a very good student of the word, and oftentimes when I heard parables, they had very superficial meaning. And so as Spurgeon once alluded to, that which I study the most is what you're going to get. So this week you're going to hear a little bit about the parable of the soils. And that will be in Mark 4, 1 through 20. So speaking of, of Spurgeon and, and parables in particular, he did have something to say that I want to share with you this morning before I get started. And the reason I want to do that is a lot of times when we hear these parables, and I listen to a lot of uh, podcasts and a lot of different preachers, and I've just by happenstance, because of my vocation, I get to hear a lot of different people and their take on the parables. There seems to be a lot of mishandling of the word, and there's not a lot of depth in there. And sometimes parables, they, people fill them with allegory and all kinds of mythical meanings, and every part of the parable has to have some underlying hidden meaning. And they're pretty straightforward. And we'll see that today because we're going to talk about that in this particular parable, what Jesus had to say about what the parable is and why he spoke in parables. So we're going to get to that, but this is what Spurgeon had to say concerning Christ giving these parables. The Savior knew what he meant when he spoke. Some people, when they speak, they do not know what they mean. And when a man does not make you understand what he means, it is generally because he himself does not know the meaning of what he says. If he thinks clouds, he'll preach clouds. But the, the Savior never spoke in that style, which at one time was so common in our pulpit, a style imported partly from Germany and which was excessively cloudy and smoky, though it was thought by some people to have been wonderfully profound and be the very trademark of high intellect. But there was not a sentence of that kind in all of Christ's teaching. He was the clearest, most straightforward, and most outspoken of all speakers. He knew what he meant to say, and he meant for his hearers also to know. It is true that the Jews of his day did not comprehend some of his teaching. Well, that was because of judicial blindness that had fallen upon them. The fault was not in the light, it was in their blurred eyes. Turn to his teaching and see if anyone else ever spoke so simply as he did. A child can comprehend his parables. There are in them hidden truths, though, which are a mystery even to Christ's deeply taught disciples. But Christ never mystified it to his hearers. He talked to them like a child. He never laid aside the simplicity of childhood, though he had all the dignity of a fully developed manhood. He wore his heart upon his sleeve and spoke out what was in his mind, in, in his mind such plain, clear language that the poorest of poor 
and the lowest of the low were eager to listen to him. And so I, say, I brought that to your attention today because as we look, and Spurgeon was on point here, Christ lays this out. And in this in particular parable, we're going to actually get an explanation. So if you've got your Bibles, Mark 4, verses 1 through 20, that's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to dive into the text. And it's my guess that for most of you, as you heard me allude to this, what we're going into, that this is not the first time that you've heard this parable. Uh, regardless, we're going to re rely on the work of the illuminating Holy Spirit this morning. We're going to ask for wisdom and discernment as we enrich our mind in God's Word. And as is our personal habit, and you probably know this if you've been in Bree in any time, we're going to look at what the Word says, what it means by what it says, and what kind of application or implication is there for us. And that should be our habit every time that we search the truth of God's Word. And I only say that and bring that up to you because if you look around, and I see a lot of Facebook posts and different things, and you look at some of the influential people who actually get platforms in the Christian world, they, uh, the good majority of the time, they have notoriety, but they mishandle the Word of God, and they do so at an appalling rate. And so as often as we get the opportunity, we're going to give you that encouragement. So this morning, we're going to look at the parable that Jesus has to tell us to help us understand what it happens when we share the gospel with those around us. So I want to pose this question as we go into this this morning is, do you have a right standing before God just because you've heard the good news of Jesus Christ? Because that's what this parable is going to illuminate for us. Do you have a right standing before God just because you've heard the good news of Jesus Christ? So what happens when we share the gospel with those around us? And if you're sitting here today, regardless of what you think about God or godly things, heavenly things, what's going to happen is you're going to see you're going to fit into one of these categories. You don't really have an option here. But before we jump in this text, let me ask you this question. What is a parable? Is it a simple story? Does it have a hidden meaning? I alluded to this a little bit earlier. Does it illustrate something? And the short answer is yes and no. And we're going to see that for some people uh, it's simple, and for others it's very profound. And you're going to see that based on where people stand before God here in a second. So a parable is, in fact, a story. It is a simple word picture, and for us it's going to have a profound spiritual lesson. Now, the word parable gets its root from the same words that we get our idea of parallel, or if you're a math guru, the parabola. And so with those in mind, you maybe understand a parable is a story that will come alongside, or it's going to mirror something, so it's going to provide some sort of comparison for us. And as is the case with Jesus' parables, they're going to be earthly stories that are full of heavenly meaning. And more specifically, Jesus focuses parables on earthly stories that had direct implications to the kingdom of God. And we're going to see that in his own words. So they're going to have direct implications to the kingdom of God or the gospel of God. And we know the gospel means good news. And the good news in particular is Jesus Christ. So those listening to Christ in our passage today, because we're going to set some context here, they didn't have the complete picture or the complete work that we have today that we know as the Bible. So you've got to use that context a little bit to understand here in a minute why the meaning of the parables initially escapes them. And secondly, why, they're gonna, why they wouldn't, some of them wouldn't come to understand this at all eternally. So turn to your copy of God's Word. We're going to read in Mark 4, starting in verse 1. And we're going to read through verse 20. That's going to cover the entire parable. And it began... And again, he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. 
Then he taught them many things by parables, and he said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and yet yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground, and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. He said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that, seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so only endure for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. So how many of you remember that story? I know that it's a pretty familiar story that most of us have heard at some point throughout our childhood. We've been in church at any given, any given amount of time. But did you know or do you remember when you read this story that this story gives us a direct explanation from the words of Christ what our expectations are as we give out the gospel? That this is going to tell us what happens, one, what happened in our life, or has yet to happen, two, what happens as we take that word out. So in this simple agrarian example, he told us that some of you sitting here today, you're going to hear the gospel, that it's going to do one of four things. And the gospel as it goes out will have one of four outcomes, but more specifically, and we're going to work through this, it's going to be one of two eternal outcomes. On the one hand, you have the option of being bad soil, and on the other, you have the option of being good soil. You will either be fruitless, which comes to destruction, or you'll be fruitful and multiply. So let me point out a few key things here to help us understand what's going on here. First of all, Jesus is teaching great multitudes, and this is important because as we move through here, we're going to see his disciples are there as well, but there's also this crowd that's following that want to know what this Jesus guy is all about. And one of the key points that you have to pick up as we read through this is that the parables are taught as a judgment. So Jesus had taught simply before, and I alluded to it a minute ago with uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He, he taught straightforward. There wasn't any hidden meaning. There wasn't a parable, an illusion story. You can think about that, that Sermon on the Mount. Very straightforward. So he hasn't always used parables. But this is going to be a turning point in his ministry. He begins teaching in parables, and many are not going to understand. And that is the, the intentional, purposeful teaching of the parables. You say, wait, wait a minute, preacher, that, did you say Jesus taught so that people wouldn't understand? The answer is yes. 
And I don't like to put that forth and say that we're just guessing. So Christ is going to set this forth as a type of teaching, and we're not going to guess upon that meaning. It's actually based on Old Testament prophecy, and Jesus explains that. So look back at verse 10. What does it say? It says, Jesus tells the parable, and the disciples come to him afterwards confused. So they don't even get it at first. And he says, but when he was alone, those around him with the twelve came and asked him about the parable. So we've moved on from the setting of the larger crowd to this group that's following him that includes the disciples. And he says to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are on the outside, all things come in parables. Why is that? Verse 12 picks up and says, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, do you not understand the parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So Jesus kind of set up just then the platform of how we have to look at the parables as we go through the New Testament. What did he say they are? The mysteries of the kingdom of God, and to you it's been given, but to those on the outside it's not. How are you going to understand any of those parables? Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 when he says it, and he says it's not for them to understand, or they may turn and their sins be forgiven them. That sounds a lot like judgment, doesn't it? So he's now going to turn his teaching style to parables. He's going to give them parables. And what this is doing is this is just highlighting the rejection of Christ by the larger unbelieving crowd. And I say the larger unbelieving crowd because why? We just pointed out the disciples are here and they are, getting, they are being told the meaning. Because verse 13 again, it says, how then will you understand all the parables? He just gets to explain it to them that they, it's been given to them to know these things. But that's not the case for the unbelieving crowd. Now, there are parallel accounts of this story, so if you turn to Matthew 13, we'll see the parallel account. It's going to give slightly more explanation, so I don't want you to think that we're looking for a hidden meaning here because I just tried to explain to you up front in the beginning, plus with Spurgeon's words, that we're not looking for hidden meaning. So it's going to expound a little bit further in Matthew, and it picks up in verse 10, and it says, And the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? This is the exact same account. Matthew just gives a little bit more information here. And he answers and says to them, because it's been given to you, you know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. Here we go again. It says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears of heart are hearing, their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. You see the correlation there between the, the judgment of God versus the mercy of God and how the parables are perceived by the audience. So did you read just what I, said, what I just read there? It says Jesus said the people had the truth. They didn't recognize it. They grew dull and weary. And it's no longer going to be given to them to understand. It's going to be taken away. So they're not going to understand what's being seen or heard. The parables are going to come as a judgment to the unbelieving, but mercy to the believing. It would be given to the disciples to know the meaning. Back in verse 11, it said, It's been given to you, and verse 12 follows, So you will be given more. 
We see this illustrated more fully in the parable, but, but don't shy away from what you just heard because believers are going to get, uh, gain this understanding. So as you, uh, you go through this and you think, okay, this makes sense, this makes sense, there's a reason for that. There's a reason that you can pick up on these things. But the unbelieving do not. And as such, this part of the story is going to be a subtle reminder to us that as we, as people, go out and uh, share the Word of God, there are just people who don't understand the things of God. It's just not clear to them. So I remind you that as such, and the, and the parable here is going to continue to tell this, it's not our job to talk you into Christianity. As you think about your neighbors, it's not your job to go talk them into Christianity. This is not a, a job for you to try to convince someone that Christianity is better than some other offer that they have. Instead, it's going to be about sowing the seed, which is what, this, what the parable is going to continue to say. So your job is simply sow the word just as the farmer sows the seed. So that being said, let's look back at our passage and break down some of these main items that are at play in our parable. See, in the first, pass, the first half of the passage, we have the agrarian example, and in that we have two main types of soil. We mentioned that we have the bad soil, we have the good soil in the verses 3 through 8. That's where we're going to see the highlighting of the bad soils. That's the wayside soil, the rocky soil, and the thorny soil. And on the good soil, we have soils that are very uh, fruitful. They produce 30, 60, 100-fold. Now, I don't think that analogy is uncommon, so I don't think we're going to have to make a big stretch for you to get that mental picture. Remember we talked about that word picture? That is pretty common to all of us. I think at some point most of us have gardened or seen someone garden and on a larger scale maybe farmed. So I don't think that's going to be difficult for us to see. But what we may miss is the, uh, the picture here for the audience of that day, the Jews of that day. So Israel, and particularly the areas around Galilee and the Golan Heights, there's a lot of limestone, soft limestone, and as such, you have a a lot of um, difficulty in farming in some areas, and so this word picture is going to become real clear to them. So they're going to see agricultural pathways, because you know we, they don't have roads like we have at this time. The Romans are actually establishing a lot of that. So thinking about some of your history, uh, if, you, if you're history buff. So they're going, to be dis, uh, they're going to picture these agricultural pathways that surround their fields or crops. So it's going to make sense when they say, hey, there's a variety of soils here, and the first one is, they're going to get cast by the wayside. So they're going to clearly envision a deeply trodden path that leads from one place to another. And in those places, we're going to see hard, compacted ground that would not receive any seed. And it's clear that seed unable to do anything that just lays on the surface. And it's going to be devoured by birds. Then the rocky soil, that's going to be easy for them to envision, just as it is us. Even when you have fields, you would see outcroppings where the rocky parts would be visible. And in these areas, even though there would be small amounts of visible soil, the depth would be minuscule. And that normally means it's unfit for growing anything of substance. Here the seed takes off immediately and shoots up, but it withers at the first bit of testing from the sun. And that seems to be pretty natural to us. We understand that concept. And in a third bad soil, we would see, just as we would today, the seed that sprouts amongst weeds, and such as thorns. And those seeds are going to choke out, and they're going to, the competition is going to uh, do away with the good seed. So I think, and I hope that you would agree, that that imagery, that, that's not difficult to grasp. I don't think that that's going to be hard for us. But that simple word picture is not the main idea behind the parable. This is not the main idea behind Jesus' teaching. This is that mirror or come alongside picture to help make it a little bit clearer to understand. So it's not the main idea here. It does, however, lay the groundwork for the explanation that Jesus is about to give. So Jesus' parallel story is going to be profound for those who understand it. And in his explanation... He is the sower. 
And we're gonna, we know by way of Scripture, and, we, and this is a topic for another day, but we know by way of Scripture that that's going to become us. That's part of the Great Commission. And the seed here is the Word of God. The soil is going to be the hearts of men, and the soil here is perhaps the key to this parable. And I've titled this the parable of soils. I've heard it always the parable of the sower, but the important aspect here, the important direction that we need to look at is the soils. They are what Christ is going to give the explanation for. So the soil is the hearts of men, and let me tell you this, that the, the heart is always going to be the issue. This is the issue from the Old Testament to the New Testament, front to cover. The heart's always going to be the issue that we've got to uh, address. And so you think of the parallel passage here. I'm reminded um, that when our heart is right with God, He blesses us to see Him. On the Sermon on the Mount, Christ said that in His own words. He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Kind of sounds like that if it's been, you've been blessed to receive, you will receive more. That's the correlation. And if you were to turn over a couple pages on the Sermon on the Mount and get to 621, he's going to tell you that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So that's on the, that's on the good side of things. But what about in Jeremiah 17, 9, and 10, where the lament is the heart is deceitful above all things? It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? And it goes on to say that the Lord searches the heart and gives to each man accordingly to his ways, and the man produces fruit accordingly. Kind of fitting for our example today. And so we wonder sometimes why we have so much blessing or turmoil in our lives. It's because we get back what we, what we put forth based on our heart. And I say that because it's not what we fake on the outside. It's what your true thoughts and intentions are. And that's why you're going to see when the, the correlation here between all the soils, you know, going back to the original question, do you have a right standing before God? Because you can fake a lot of things. But just hearing the word of God doesn't necessarily mean that you have a right standing before God. Jesus also had this to say about the heart while arguing with the Pharisees over their traditions in Matthew 15, 16 through 19. And I'm sure you've heard this, but it's not the things that, it's the things that come out of your mouth that directly come from the heart that defile the man. Not the things he puts in his stomach. And if that language is a little bit too ambiguous for you, Christ explains what comes from the heart in more detail in the same passage in verse 19. And he says, from out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, and these are the things that defile a man. It's the heart. You can fake it on the outside, but you can't fake it before God. And yet some of us sit around confused as if we don't know what's going on when we see these correlations with the heart. Do you have trouble at work with your boss? Check your heart. What about with your spouse? Check your heart. How about with your neighbor? Or better yet, how about with God? This is the whole point in this parable. Check your heart. That's exactly what the soil is in this parable, the hearts of men. Straight from the words of Jesus. So let's look at what the, exactly the soil parable means in our own lives. When someone hears the word of God, they're going to receive it like the examples of these soils. Now that first bad soil we said is the wayside is summarized in verse 15. This is where Christ goes through and gives his explanation on the agrarian example. How does this correlate to the Word of God and what we see? So in verse 15, it's those who have the Word taken away from them immediately by Satan. Because there's, it's just laying on the surface, right? It is those who have the Word taken away. You can liken these to individuals who hear but don't hear. That's how he described it to begin with. He's thinking about the prophecy. And the heart here is so compacted, barring from that analogy, that there is nothing for the seed to take root in. 
And 1 Timothy tells us about false teachers, and we can see this as, a, as more of a universal principle in uh, 1 Timothy 4, 2, that there is a problem with the conscience, and the conscience is seared. See, they can't receive the Word of God, and, and as such, since they can't receive it, they can't reciprocate it. They hear the Word of God, and yet it means nothing to them. They've seared their conscience to it. They just simply can't listen, or, don't, or choose not to listen. The second soil, or the bad soil, or the bad heart, we'll keep bringing that illusion back a little bit, is described as this. They hear the Word, immediately they receive it with gladness or joy, and they have no root in themselves, and so they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now, you've probably seen someone like this, or, you, or you've heard of someone like this. These individuals are those who consider following Christ, but they don't actually count the cost. And we know there's other stories biblically that we could look at what it means to count the cost. But when, it, when you think about the persecution that's going to come, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 12, that all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer what? Persecution. That shouldn't surprise us. But these individuals, they hear the word with gladness. It brings them some kind of joy, but yet there's no seed that takes place. There's no seed in this rocky soil that can take root. They're unable to produce any type of fruit. And it says that the first sign of trouble, what happens? They stumble. They're gone. These tend to be people who have an emotional response and their aptitude for following godly things comes and goes with their feelings. And you know who I'm talking about. They seem real religious at times. They're full of joy. But there's nothing lasting about these emotions when any sort of persecution, and look back to the text there, based on what? On the word comes their way. Well, what, do you, what do I mean by that? I'm talking about those individuals who talk like they're Christians, but there's no root of death, especially concerning godly things. So when God sets a standard, let's put it this way. When God sets the standard, we don't get to change it based on how we feel. If we did, we would never face persecution. So we don't get to change it based on how we feel. So let's think of some topics today. What about abortion? God says not to murder. What about homosexuality? God clearly and unequivocally forbids it. And that's just two trends, given our recent societal trends that we can look at, where these two areas, we easily see the individuals disappear when it comes to taking a stand for Christ. Let there be the slightest bit of persecution or tribulation for standing on the word of God, and what do they do? They fold. They're gone. They can't take a stand for God. There is no depth there. There is no root that can produce fruit. Back what it says in verse 17. When tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. So when they're truly asked about anything godly, they can't really take a stance. They can't take a stand, and more often than not, if they can't take a stand, it's, it's mainly what they feel about the topic. It's not what does the Word of God have to say about it. The Word of God doesn't drive the direction on the topic. And since it's not God's Word, and they liked it when it was kind of gladness and joy that brought them to this place, when that's gone, so is their so-called godly life. They disappear from that. Their personal feelings are getting trampled on, a little bit of persecution. They fold. Just a little bit of that tribulation when it deals with God's standard, and poof, they're gone. Then you have that third soil, or the third condition of the heart. And this is the soil where the seed gets choked out among the thorns and the weeds. 
And Jesus says that these individuals that are fruitless, are, and they're fruitless based on the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. So these are the individuals who listen haphazardly to the cost of what it means to follow Christ. Think of the rich young ruler turned around and couldn't give up his possessions to follow Christ. Why? Heart condition, right? Loved, loved the world and what it had to offer too much. So these individuals are fruitless based on all these things, the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things. They tend to be the busybodies. They want to buy everything. They want to work themselves to death, chase of money. They want to store up wealth for no apparent reason. They're going to chase after worldly pursuits. And you know some of these. They may attend church, but you wouldn't know they followed Christ if you actually got to look at their lives. They heard the gospel, but the cares of the world choked it out to the root. And as the end of verse 19 says, what? They became unfruitful. What does that look like? In Philippians 3, 18 through 19, Paul describes it like this concerning things that people chase with earthly things. It says, They are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10 summarizes it like this with the individuals, these individuals with the following words. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which for some they have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So, so what do those three soils have in common? All three are barren. There's no real conversion. They, they do not produce fruit. And that's a horrible position to be in. See, Christ spoke of this throughout his ministry on earth. He spoke of these type of individuals who latched on to Christianity in some form, but never really understood the concept of follow me. So you may remember he gave the story of the, the narrow road and the broad road, the narrow road that leads to heaven. It's hard for people to find. That's, that would be the good soil. Instead, what typically happens is a lot of them will find the broad road, and that road leads to destruction. These are the type of people that will cry out to Christ and say, but didn't we do works in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I think, man, that's got to be a horrible feeling. Can, I, I can't imagine what that's going to feel like, but can you imagine, and I just, just put yourself in these shoes for me, because I don't know what the condition of your heart is, but can you imagine standing before Christ and saying, but I went to church a few times, Lord. I felt happy a few times, Lord. You know, occasionally I honored you with my possessions and wealth, Lord. I told Facebook that I loved you, Lord. And he turned and said, depart from me, I never knew you. I mean, that, I, to me, that would be gut-wrenching. And that, that is, to, to me, like the ultimate disdain for, for anybody who fakes Christianity. Like, what, what is the point in it? I never knew you. Words that I would pray that, that no, no one I love would ever hear. And that is part of the encouragement I want to give you as you think about sowing the word is you don't want people in that boat. Got to be faithful to sow. So I, I mentioned earlier, I've, I've traveled the country a lot, and I've tried to always plug myself into any church. I've taken opportunities to teach or preach or just visit. And one thing that I found is that this is a, this is a, 
a really big problem in American Christianity. Uh, these three soils that we're talking about, they highlight of the, a lot of what is, I would call, the American Christian's mindset. There's no root to a lot of this supposed conversion. They couldn't talk about the Word of God for five minutes. They can't tell you what God has to say about a topic for any length amount of time. And if you can get them to talk about it, try to get them to find it in the Bible for you. If they even own a Bible. And if they can handle the Word of God for five minutes, see if they mishandle it. There's no fruit. Barren soil. So do this. The next time you, you uh, know someone who says they're a Christian, ask them if homosexuality is okay. Ask them if abortion is okay. And then when they give you an answer, ask them to show you that in the Word of God. Because I guarantee you anyone who spent any amount of time following Christ that loves God, who is obedient to His Word, can not only tell you these things, you can sit down and talk about them and look throughout the Word and, and spend hours discussing these things. Because there's fruit. Do you know why people can't do that right now? There was no seed that ever took. The gospel went out to them and the soil was barren. Was barren. And, that is, and, and by and large, if you think about our, the way America is going here, feelings have nothing to do with your salvation. In fact, your feelings are so fleeting when it comes to salvation and your ability to go to church, you can come to church one day and cheat on your spouse the next day. Or you can come to church one day and go right to work and lie to your boss the next day. You can come to church today and end up at the store stealing later on. That's what fruitlessness will get you. And yet, people that are like that a lot of times won't take the time to stop and say, well, why? What, what, what is it about the heart condition? You can turn to James 4, and, and I'll show you this. The um, Bible has a lot to say on these things. There's a lot that we could say. We could make this a lot longer than it needs to be, but I promise we'll have you out of here before 3 o'clock. No, I'm just kidding. It'll be a little bit sooner than that, maybe. Uh, but James 4.4 gives us a reminder that uh, there are those who try to identify with the church, and yet what they really do is they love the world. And so you think about the condition of your heart, think about the condition of those who you may interact with, and think about these words. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in, you, dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and warn, mourn and, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Did you catch that? Friendship with the world makes you what? An enemy of God. So I don't know what your position is today, but maybe you hear something like that, and the Holy Spirit, maybe he's going to work and he's turning some of that bad soil. Maybe he's preparing that to bear fruit. Maybe it's not. Maybe you know someone that you might hear some of this and think, you know, if I share with my neighbor, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit will work there. But how will they hear unless someone tells them? The Bible tells us that. We've got to be vocal about it. Now you can turn to Galatians 6, because I know sometimes we read some of those things and they don't quite mean as much as we think they mean. 
oh, I get it. It means they're an enemy of God. And some, some people chuckle. You share that with someone and they don't make a big deal out of it. In Galatians 6, I'll give you this reminder in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived for God is not mocked. And it is fitting for our example today, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For if you sow of the flesh, of the flesh you will reap corruption. But if you sow of the Spirit, of the Spirit you will reap everlasting life. Did you catch that? Corruption or eternal life? It's not a game. You know, sometimes we don't take this as serious as we need to. Sometimes we don't take the time to think about the condition of our heart. So, I mean, I, I remember, I guess I sat in church for about 10 years before it ever took. I mean, 10 years it took for, for think about the farmer that had to till for 10 years to get the soil to take. That, that's my story, though. I definitely didn't want to be on the end of this thinking that what I was really saying is I mock God and I want nothing to do with it as I played around with life and the fact that the seed hadn't taken place, hadn't taken any root. So it's not a game, and I would say perhaps that the only thing in life that really ever matters is what is the condition of your soil. And see, the parable's not over. We went through the beginning of the, the parable, and we talked about all the different uh, bad soils, but if you look back at our text in Mark, there are those who are going to hear the word, and something happens. Look back at our text in Mark. There are those who hear the word, and in verse, in verse 20, they hear the word, they accept it, and what is the key? We've already mentioned this before. They bear fruit. And in this soil, they're going to bear 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now, let's go back into our context and who he's talking to, and we're talk, talking to the, the Jews of this day. You can do a quick Google search and find some of these things. Um, if you can get your soil to produce 100 fold back then, good luck. They were happy with sevenfold. And it was a miracle if they could get it to be tenfold. That would just be amazing to them. Here in the story, though, Jesus wants them to see is there is no limit to his increase. That's a shocking factor, and they're listening to this story. 30, 60, 100 fold, what's up with this guy? Well, it's tough for the unbelievers to understand what he means. They're not catching the correlation and the, the comparison of these stories side by side. So Jesus wants you to see there's no limit to his increase. And that's why these numbers are so large, because it is not you convincing people and, and, and multiplying and bearing fruit is the Holy Spirit. You just simply have to be committed to sowing the word. And the number is large because at this point, real conversion takes place. That's the bearing of fruit. Not all the nonsense that we read about in the three bad soils. All those people who like to surround themselves and they think church is a nice club and I like hanging out with people. And, and you get all these different people that we looked at and we've seen today with the, the different conditions of the heart. That's not real conversion. That's not what we're looking at. That individual, as we, learned, as we read a little bit ago, they move away from friendship with the world and, and they become a friend of God. The seed takes root. It has depth. So what, what does that look like? What does that look like? What should it look like in your life if that is the case? If, you, if the seed has taken root and, it, and, it's, and you say, man, I have, it, that's definitely what's happened in my life. What, what's the, what should that look like? Because the Bible makes lots of promises about it and it talks about you being a new creation and there's a lot of things we could go into. But what does that really look like? How, what kind of godly things should you desire? 
Because those godly things mean that there should be some reproducing going on. There should be some bearing of spiritual fruit. Now, one of those fruits, and we, we mentioned this earlier because Christ was a sower and that job gets handed off to us, one of those is disciple-making. And that was the key to the Great Commission, That's, and Jesus gave that to us. So you hear that phrase, go and make disciples, and if you think about our story, then we should be bearing 30, 60, 100-fold. But what does it look like if you're bearing fruit versus those first three soils that you looked at? And I would say the Bible has way too much to say about it. And if you looked at the notes, uh, and we'll, I'll give you some of these highlights here in just a second, but the notes I gave you, one of those things is just the one another's. And that's on the back, and that's not even a comprehensive list. And that's just things you should be doing to one another inside the body of Christ. That's not even talking about the way you should live your entire life. So what does it look like to desire godly things? What kind of characteristics would, this, would it look like? And this is just a quick summary. The Bible talks about praying without ceasing, renewing your mind daily, loving God, loving others. That's the two greatest commandments straight from, from Jesus. What, where is there obedience to the word of God? Do you keep the fellowship of the saints? Do you carry out the one another's that I just mentioned? Do you follow in believers' baptism? And do you partake in the Lord's Supper? And that's not an exhaustive list by no means. But I would say if you hear that list and you are doing those things and you take some pleasure in them, there's a good chance that the, the seed took root, that you had good soil, that the condition of the heart's in the right spot. You have chosen friendship with God. And when that persecution comes, like it did in those other soils, that we talked about earlier, and the busyness of life hits, and riches are thrown at you, and the world seeks to occupy your time, and all those things get thrown at you, the word that is firmly planted in you through God will allow you to continue to bear fruit in that soil. Those things won't matter. There will be no withering away, or there will be no being choked out by the weeds. Why? Because salvation has come. Sometimes we use big words like salvation and redemption and propitiation and all that. So I just want to, to put as simple terms as I can. What, what is salvation? What is hearing the word and accepting it? We see in the soil that's what we want to do. We want to bear fruit. And it's as simple as this and yet profound as this. You and me, we just do wrong things. We are, we are bad by nature. We do not live up to a holy standard before an almighty God. We are not righteous. Our supposed good deeds that we think we have are but filthy rags compared to perfection. And we're told that no person on earth apart from Christ will ever or could ever be found to be righteous enough to have fellowship with God. Now as such, God required to there to be something to cover that sin. There had to be a sacrifice. And that's pretty much what the, old, old Testament, the whole Old Testament is about. That whole sacrificial system to cover or to, to ask for forgiveness of sins. But Christ, or God in his infinite wisdom, knew that that was a failed system that we would never be able to live up to. And he sent his son to us, and that righteousness, he sent his son to us as that final sacrifice to summarize the whole Old Testament as the only thing necessary for salvation, for there to be perfect righteousness, for you to have a perfectly good standing before God. And he sent that righteousness to earth as a baby in a manger. And we celebrate that. We call it Christmas. That Christ lived a perfect life, a sinless life, and it upset humanity and the religious elite so much that in their blind hatred they killed him and put him on a cross. And unbeknownst to them, they fulfilled prophecy and God's plan. And on that cross he died, but on the third day after being buried, he was resurrected 
That's why we still celebrate Easter. And that sacrifice that we now celebrate, that took the place of every other sacrifice that would have ever been necessary for you to ask for any sort of covering for your sins. And God said, all you have to do is believe. And you say, believe what? Well, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says it pretty plainly and that you've got to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For at the heart you believe unto righteousness, so that's that good standing I just mentioned, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That setting apart and saving from eternal destruction. That fruitlessness moving into bearing fruit. So you just simply understand that before God, there is nothing that any of us have to offer him. Jesus, on the other hand, does offer something to him on our behalf. And that your condition that you have, whatever that condition is, when you're that bad soil in your heart, it only takes you repenting of your sins and confessing Christ to change that. And repenting, repenting is just a big word to say you've got to turn from your life of sin. That, that is not obedience to Christ. You turn away from that. And in salvation, you obey Christ. That's, that is what you move towards. And that simple and yet profound explanation is the seed from our parable. The seed literally just went out and fell on soil. Simple, right? But yet the implications are profound. So, what's your heart's condition? If you're a believer and you're sharing that, what's the condition of the, those around you? Jesus set that expectation. We talked about that in the beginning. He set the expectation for what's going to happen when that seed hits the soil. Is it going to bear fruit? Or if you're struggling, is it because you're choosing the world? Is it because you're choosing money? Have you seared the conscience? Have you made yourself an enemy of God? Do you run when persecution comes? Do the things of the world choke out God? I want you to listen and listen very carefully to these next few sentences I'm going to say. And that's because this American Christian mindset seems to baffle me a little bit, and I think that we've just become way too comfortable in the, uh, the Christian club, so to speak. And so if this doesn't directly apply to you, it applies to someone you know, and they need to know this. There is nothing that I, standing here, can do for you about the condition of your heart before God. Pastor can't come up here and change the condition of your heart. Your church membership and attendance today doesn't change the condition of your heart. Your family proximity, mom and dad are here, grandma and grandpa are here, that does not change your condition and standing before God. The fact that you're an American doesn't change your standing before God. Wretched, vile creatures that we are. There is but one answer. It is that righteousness that I just spoke of a minute ago and righteousness alone that comes from Jesus Christ, that ultimate sacrifice before God that removes our, our sins and allows us to enter into the holy presence with God. So will you call on Jesus Christ to be your Lord? Are you calling on your neighbor to do this? Are you sending this seed out? Or is the seed still in the bag? Will you answer his invitation when he says, follow me? Do you call on others to, to answer that invitation? Because I mentioned Romans 10, 9, and 10, and if you go a little bit further in that, it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So will you cry out to Jesus today? 
Will you sow that seed? And I'll go back to the question I asked you at the beginning. Does the fact that you heard the word change your standing before God? Possibly not. The simple fact that you heard the word does not mean that you have a right standing before God. There's three soils that don't. So I'm going to leave you there with that today. Do you have a right standing before God? And if you do, are you asking your neighbors the same thing? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to do this freely in this country, for the time being anyway, Lord. We pray that you give us courage and might uh, to understand that what we have is so precious and yet so vital to those around us. Lord, we pray for wisdom and discernment as we continue to glean from your word and how to apply that to our lives and how to, to help others see the same thing. We pray for the condition of our hearts, those who still seek to desire you, Lord, and have not found fertile soil, and for those around us that we cast this seed out to. Lord, may your word go back and not return void. May we be found faithful to give it out and not keep it in our seed bag. Lord, we just pray that you would be honored by our actions. And as we celebrate Father's Day, Father's Day today, Lord, we pray for the, the men in here specifically that as we serve in roles as husbands and fathers, that we do so honorably, that we raise up our, our wives and children to be holy before you, that we live up to the holy standard, and Lord, when we fail, you pick us back up and get us on the right direction immediately. Or maybe we find encouragement in one another in this body to do that. Lord, we thank you for your son and the sacrifice he paid to cover our sins for eternity, if we just believe. Thank you for that shed blood and sacrifice on the cross. And it's in his name and the power of what he did on our behalf that we ask these things. Amen.